0: Okay. Uh, In in the beginning of one's practice.
1: We're starting to do something new that we've never done before, and that is actually start looking at the thoughts. As as they are thoughts and and uh, uh, observing them in a way that we've never done before. So that uh, We become kind of surprised uh, at. I would say, basically, the the first surprise the student gets is how out of control his mind actually is. And the reason for that is because we've never tried to control it, It, uh, the, the human mind has been trained for many things. For instance, automobile mechanics trained their mind for repairing automobiles. The first time a young man or boy tries to repair an automobile, he screws it up and almost always has to get help. And sometimes if he takes a whole engine apart, he'll never get it back together again. This is just the way things are Um, that when we start doing something new, we always fail at it.
0: And yet we have in our culture. um, Let us say injunctions
1: against failure, you're supposed to succeed. That's the critical mind. Is this is not good enough? You need to do this instead. And so we bring that mentality to the meditation. And when we do, we wind up with words like hard and try And other things like this. And really, the right thing to do is from the very, very beginning, learn to change those thoughts from um, critical thoughts into nurturing thoughts. And one of the ways of doing that is is to say that it really is okay that the mind wanders away from the breath. That's absolutely okay. That in fact, that's what the mind does. That's the habit of the mind. And psychologists forever have known about that. As long as they were called psychologists, they've known about this. That in fact, Sigmund Freud based his uh, modality of psychotherapy under this. He called it free association. What is free association? Nothing but the monkey mind just jumping around. Okay, so uh, one of the ways of thinking about the monkey mind jumping around is to recognize that the reason that it's jumping from here to there is because here is not
0: comfortable.
1: And so the monkey goes from here to there. And that place is now the new here and that place here is not comfortable. So the monkey mind jumps again. Basically, we can say that the monkey mind is jumping and jumping and jumping in a way because it's being chased. And that that being chased is just kind of a metaphor with monkey minds to talk about that there is something underlying the thoughts themselves that is considered called restlessness.
0: And restlessness means um,
1: basically the underlying uh, point about restlessness is fear. In the sense that something is not quite right, And I would be more comfortable or I'd feel more secure if everything were right. And the point is, is that actually in reality is everything is okay. We're just in the habit of being critical about everything. And so we wind up saying that whatever it is right now, there's got to be something wrong with it. Things cannot be okay as they are. They never have been. At least that's the way that my daddy told me. I mean, everything I did, he'd criticize. And so now everything I do, I criticize. Because I learned that behavior. Okay. So that's the way that we start out meditation. So when we have the instruction of uh, mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long, uh, the mind, if if it's not really attached this is one of the problems with the kind of meditation practice that talks about it in the sense of just watch or observe the breath because if the mind doesn't have any skin in the game of watching or observing the breath then it will be very easy for that mind to just jump away to jump onto something else perhaps a more favorite topic
0: because let's face it breath up to now has not ever been a favorite topic of your own mind. (laughs) Definitely not. But things can change.
1: And then, in fact, breathing is a is a delightful topic to continue to return to over and over and over again. And so uh, when we get started in the practice.
0: The first off, the mind is not trained. And so uh, it uh,
1: actually retrain the mind the way that you would train any animal. A dog. That you keep re, um, if, if the dog does what you want it to do, you reward the dog, right? You've Mm -hmm. seen dog trainers. They have a whole pocket full of doggy goodies. And every time that the dog performs, they get a treat, right? But here you are as a human. And every time that the mind wanders away, you beat it. (laughs) Say, this is hard work. Oh, monkey mind. Oh, poor me. It's hard to meditate. Well, when you do that, you're just training in the same things that you've always been trained in. When you fail, you feel disappointed. This is the point that I made with Bhikkhu Dasa uh, by saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, which is exactly what you were about to get into. And Vihabhu Das's answer to that was, "No." And he and says, "When at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. Okay? Looking at what we're doing here is the whole point about the failure. If you fail and look at what you're doing, you'll learn. and you can make corrections and it will succeed. But most of us have the idea that if you at first you don't succeed, never mind looking at what you're doing, just keep doing what you were doing. I think it was Einstein who, or at least it's uh, attributed to Einstein the quip that um, insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting new results. This is actually what most people practice in in what they're calling meditation. Here we're expecting to start changing those failures into successes, because actually the distinction between a success and a failure is only a mental attitude anyway. And it's based upon the greed of wanting something that we don't have. And when we're successful at getting it, then we feel better. Because we don't get what we want. Here we're practicing something completely different than that. And that is is that we're practicing intentionally rather than wanting something and then getting it, which is the, the style of Western life.
0: is is that we're going to practice not wanting anything. We practice not wanting anything.
1: And when we can get pretty good at not wanting anything, then we can live our lives happy and joyful and free because we don't want anything.
0: That wanting stuff that we don't have is dangerous. Now, often we see Um, those, the things that we want
1: generally fall into two classifications, but all, almost always they have to do with the bottom line of safety and security. In other words, I want a lot of money because if I had a lot of money, then I would feel safe and secure and I wouldn't go have to work and do all the stuff that I don't want to do in order to feel safe that I have, if I had a lot of money, then I would feel safe, right? Isn't that a point to I mean, that's what our society kind of teaches us. Mm-hmm. Right? Except that the more money you have, the more money you have to guard and protect. You might even have to hire accountants and uh, brokers to help you manage your money because now you've got so much of it. It's really, really important. I mean, you got millions, you got billions of dollars. Now, guess what? Now the money becomes so important because now not only do you have to protect yourself,
0: which is the whole reason for getting money. Now you got to protect the money, too. Isn't that interesting? There's a story about it. I think that the story was written by um, Mark
1: Twain, but I'm not not sure of the author. And the name of the story is The Prince and the Pauper. They've had movies and musicals, and I think there's an original book. And the story is about a, a boy, who uh, was a um, he was streetwise. He was street urchin, sort of like uh, uh, Oliver, in Oliver's Twist. Uh, and so, uh, someone discovered because of a tattoo or something that he was actually the long lost prince. And so they took him to the palace and they cleaned him up and presented him to the king. And the king recognized that this truly is my son. And the boy started living in the palace with all of the palace accoutrements, including palace guards and whatnot like that. And he began to like the fact that this is dangerous. Or he began to see the fact that this is dangerous being in the palace is dangerous because you've got all of this fancy stuff that needs to be guarded and you need all of these guards following me around. He didn't want to. So he actually snuck out of the palace because he was better off, better uh, suited for being out on the street. It was a safer place for him than in the palace. Uh, This is actually a story that doesn't really happen often. But it puts the uh, us in the position of seeing that many times the kind of money and value and whatnot that we want winds up being dangerous. Also, the lust for power is another way that we try to feel safe and secure. If I have a lot of power, but have a lot of importance, then I feel safe. That actually comes from the herding instinct that we got from uh, the mammals that we evolved from looking at wildebeest, that when the um, the lions come, the wildebeest will collect together into a herd. The ones in the middle of the herd then are the safest wildebeest. The ones who were straggling on the outside are likely to be dinner. So that mentality of getting into the middle and and uh, getting surrounded by a lot of other people is actually instinctual. Except that this the power that we're seeking in order to feel safe, actually, we wind up abusing it and harming others, any power that we create over other people, we tend to abuse it. You've heard, in fact, the statement of uh, power corrupts and ultimate power ultimately corrupts. Well, this is true whether it's ordinary power, the power of a gun, the power of a whip, or the power of the mind. Let us say that someone has practiced meditation for whatever and did some technique of whatever and wound up having magical powers the kind of powers that they talk about in religions. And when he's got these magical powers, then he would have power over other people. Which means that now he is really free to follow his greed. Now he can really go and do what he wants to do and get away with it because he's got the power to get away with it. This is one of the downfalls of people who were practicing in the spiritual world of, let us say, Anapanasati or the practice of the teachings of the Buddha. We need to put down the thoughts of gaining any power in order to be safe, that a much better way to work on it is, is to practice on being safe directly. If we feel safe and secure, then we don't need any power to protect us. And so gaining power um, is a kind of a side trip. That happens in meditation. And and so uh, looking at it from the actual teachings of the Buddha, what we're looking for is freedom from wanting things, not the freedom to get what we want. Also, it's the freedom from being afraid rather than having to get the things that will protect us. This is the the way that we're practicing now is to get the mind fixed so that we don't have to have anything else. We don't have to have the uh, the the boy that that was the pauper is just fine out on the street. He doesn't need that palace. He doesn't need the money and the protection and the duties. That come with that kind of responsibility. And yet, in our society, we're all taught that being in the palace is better than being out on the street, except that being out on the street is real freedom. He can go anywhere he wants to. If he's in the palace, he's got no freedom. Any place he goes, the guards are going to follow him to protect him. So, we we begin to look at this uh, beginner's mind, this monkey mind that has never been trained before. We have trained, for instance, you've trained by being able to learn to read. You've trained by learning the computer. If you can learn to use the computer, if you can learn to read, you can also learn to read your thoughts and learn to, to do that. But in the beginning, uh, we'd get discouraged because the mind doesn't do what we want it to do. It's very much like I said about training a dog. We've got to treat the, the mind. We have to congratulate it. We have to nourish the mind because we spend all of this time in critical thinking, trying to get what we want, trying to feel safe trying to go along to get along, follow the rules, etc. like that, that is all filled with critical thinking. Now, critical thinking is, in fact, the kind of thinking
0: that. Built our society. That without the society, we would all still be living in the jungle. But when we build the city. We don't
1: change the mind of the humans. We take the humans out of the jungle and put them in the city, and the city then becomes the concrete jungle because the real jungle is in the mind. Uh, There was a song in uh, a TV series by the name of Monk many years ago, and the theme song uh, caught my attention. The theme song says that it's a jungle out there. And basically, um, the guy named Monk was a very, very good investigator, something like Sherlock Holmes. But the the way he became that was because of his um, uh, aversion uh, to dirt. He had a phobia. And so uh, to him, the whole world was dirty. It was a jungle out there. But I changed that around so the students would understand that it's not a jungle out there. It's a jungle in there. That his jungle was between his ears. Hmm. That's where the jungle lies. So understanding that there's a jungle in there. A lot of people say I'm going to meditate and so they open the door to paradise. No, they open the door to the jungle. That's what you've got to deal with is the fact that there is a jungle in there. And there needs some training to, uh, to happen. And the way that we're going to train is instead of trying to chop down the jungle, we're going to actually learn to enjoy it. To enjoy the jungle in there. So the mind is actually a jungle. And as we learn to enjoy it, That means that our observation of it turns it from a jungle into a paradise, your choice. But in fact, that's the basic story of Adam and Eve. Basic story of Adam and Eve in the Bible is that they were thrown out of paradise. For their sin of having to put up with their own mind. What does that mean? Well. If you look at the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, eating of the fruit means having to put up with the results. Like fruit is not always apples and oranges and pears. Sometimes there's fruit of the loom, uh, the fruit of one's labors, the fruit of the loin. Fruit in this case, and in fact, um, in Pali is used a lot. The word fruit is used for the word result. Okay, so the result of the knowledge of good and evil is is that we go around with the knowledge, oh, that's good, that's evil, this is good, this is bad. In other words, we look at it in the sense of everything is a jungle and by doing so, we create a jungle and we were living in paradise all along. Adam and Eve created or lived in a paradise, and they judged it to be a jungle. What we're going to do now is kind of reverse that. We're going to take that jungle now that we have in our society and make it into a paradise simply by not judging it anymore. So in that regard, what we're meaning is, is that when you see the mind wandering away instead of judging it, with more critical thinking we nurture it that's the
0: real point is to begin to nurture the mind to give now, yourself go ahead when you say nurture
2: where uh, by because listening to some other videos if you notice unwholesome thoughts you want to get rid of them so we're not nurturing now those right I mean I I guess um. A little confused on that i mean
0: we don't want to accept everything that comes up right or well there's a difference
1: then i think that in fact the uh the small mistake you made is that you're saying that i am the thoughts okay okay i'm talking about nurturing the child ego state or the 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 mind state and i'm making a distinction between the state of the mind and the objects of the mind okay okay so we actually nurture the state of mind by changing the objects of the mind if we continue to be critical of the objects of the mind then we're not going to be able to change the state of mind but we can change the state of the mind by changing the kind of thoughts that we have. For instance, changing the thoughts from critical thoughts into wholesome thoughts or nurturing thoughts. But what you're doing or thinking about is that when I see a critical thought, I should be critical of it. Hmm. Rather than, no, it's time to drop the critical thinking and just be nurturing not of that thought because now the nurturing is a new thought and that old thought is gone we're looking at it from one mind moment to the next in the immediate here now <clears throat> so well,
0: well, what do you thought, what are
2: what what you nurturing though at that point if you're not uh, nurturing the thought
1: well what you're nurturing is um how you feel okay that would be a way of looking at it is, is that the nurturing thoughts. Um, this, just go back and do this. You have a, um, an, un, an unwholesome critical thought, critical thought, critical thought, and then you wake up to that critical thought. You
0: can have more critical thoughts about Looks like we're losing you on the on the uh,
1: sound at least. Yes. Okay. That's good. I got that taken care of. Okay. All right. So instead of being critical of the critical thoughts, that's just continuing on, which is what most people do. Mm-hmm. And the example of that is, oh, poor me, oh, monkey mind, oh, this is hard. You know, mm-hmm. those are those are critical thoughts of. Seeing the critical thoughts. The Buddha had a different way of talking about it. And the phrase that he used was, Aha, I see you, Myra. Now, that Aha, I see you, Myra, in that way is much more of a wholesome, nurturing, Aha, I see that, rather than, Oh, poor me.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: That's the difference. We have to start changing the thought process or
1: gladdening the mind or removing unwholesome thoughts and putting wholesome thoughts in many, many different ways to talk about it. But the important point is for the students to recognize that when they catch themselves in critical thinking, they have to stop doing that right then and there and put in new wholesome thoughts instead. This is what is missing in the um, choiceless awareness. In choiceless awareness, they kind of teach to just accept these uh, uh, critical thoughts, which basically means that you're just going to keep on having critical thoughts over and over and over again, because we're not doing anything to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. The other way, which is actually almost the same thing, is what they call noting method in the Mahasi. Now, there's certainly room for noting, especially when we get the mind fit for noting. When the mind is fit for work, then we're going to do an even deeper investigation. So we can say then that the word noting is normally in our context, uh, an investigation. And when we do that investigation, then we're going to clean house. And when we finish cleaning house, when we've got the mind clean in this particular moment, we're going to continue to investigate. But now we've got something really worthwhile investigating. (coughs) Before, all we had was the critical thoughts. And all we really need to do with the investigation of the critical thoughts is just to recognize them as critical thoughts so that we can throw them out and that's it. To where with the Mahasi noting system, they talk about noting whatever is there, which means to note critical thoughts. But the Buddha says otherwise. He says, no, we have to take that right effort of the Eightfold Noble Path. One's right effort is to change the unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts, to change our unwholesome view to a wholesome view, to to change our attitude literally from victim to being a winner, to being a champion. So we can do that by uh, replacing the kind of thoughts that we have from, I've gotta go to town, I gotta go to the bank, I gotta go do this, I've gotta do that into, right now I'm not going to the bank, right now I'm not going to town. Right now, there's nothing to do. I
0: really don't have to do anything. I could just sit here and enjoy being alive. This is the way that we're going to approach it, Then is, is that I think that uh,
1: Western people with Western Buddhism have put in way, way too much emphasis upon this thing that they call meditation. Basically, what we're really needing to do is change the way that we think by changing our thoughts individually, one at a time. Just the thought right here, right now, just this thought is the only thought. That needs to be changed. And we can let, we can let us say be unmindful or have no sati and the mind is just spinning and spinning and spinning, let us say, having an argument with someone. But as soon as we recognize that, as soon as we see it, as soon as we wake up, we can say, Aha, uh-huh, I don't have to argue with Aunt Susie right now. I can, because Aunt Susie's not here right now. I look around, there's no Aunt Susie. If there's no Aunt Susie here, why should I be having Aunt Susie up here? Right. I can just throw Aunt Susie and all the thoughts and all of the argument that I had with Aunt Susie.
0: Right out of the mind. How do you define sati? I define
1: sati uh, differently than the way that has been defined in the West with mindfulness. With mindfulness-based stress reductions and all of that kind of stuff. But in fact, the Buddha did not have a kind of word like that, that sati, actually means to wake up and to be here now you could also say that the prominent uh, verb to use would be to remember remember okay remember another way of, of using it though even a more precise verb would be to wake up to actually uh when we say to wake up that means to come into the sensual reality of the spatial uh area around the physical body to wake up and be here now rather than in the mind that is all out there someplace like i said conversations or arguments with aunt susie with aunt susie is not here Aunt Susie's not here. So if we're having thoughts of Aunt Susie, that means that our mind is not here. Waking up to be here now, that's the sati. So we can say that watching one's breath, controlling one's breath, making sure that the breathing is long, that's actually part of it. So we can say that in the normal way that uh, that it's taught to just be aware of the of the uh, breathing is not really strong enough sati that we really do need to wake up completely. Here's an example of that. The very, very first thing that happens to most people when they wake up in the morning, when they first wake up, what's the very first thing that happens? Recognition that you're awake. That's the very first thought moment that happens when you wake up in the morning. But most people don't wake up enough to actually get out of bed. They only wake up enough to know that they've gotten awake. This is actually a very, very good time of day to practice before we get out of bed is to lay in bed and to have good, wholesome thoughts like, wow, what a wonderful day this is. Well, wow, everything is going to go as, uh, according to no schedule or it's going to be a wonderful day. No problems. Everything is going to be all right. Everything is fine. No worries, no work. Everything is going to be really easy. So these are the kind of thoughts that we want to start practicing having as opposed to the kind of thoughts that you normally have in the morning when you wake up which is, oh, God, I got to go to work now, oh, poor me. And we start our day getting out of bed in a pity party. Be careful of that. Allow yourself to have a ball before you get up in the morning. Allow yourself to um, intentionally have good, wholesome thoughts that this needs to be practiced. It's almost like a one, two, or maybe even a three punch. Let's let's start with the example that someone is doing a job. He's at work. And it is a job that he's doing because he calls it a job and he would rather not be there. So now he's got two problems. One is he's working and two, he's working at not liking working. <laughs> and... Uh, the, the answer is, is that he's not going to just start liking what he's doing. He actually needs to get away from the work, get secluded from it, to come away so that he can practice getting his mind into a really good state. Joyful, happy, bouncing, free, and then he can come back to that job joyful, bouncing and free and 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 do the job but now it's not a job now it's a toy to play with so this is the way that we need to look at it is that we need to withdraw from the world that we are entangled with we operate with we have a love-hate relationship with to seclude ourselves from that and get the mind in a really really good state once the mind is in a really good state, we can now come back and deal with the world with our mind in that really good state. For most people, that doesn't last very long. And so they need to come back into seclusion and practice some more, and then get the mind in a really good state, and then go back and try it again. And they do it for a while, and then they feel bad again because of the world. And so they withdraw again. They get their mind in a really, really good state again, and then they go back and deal with the world, and now they can deal with it better and longer, but it'll come a time when they lose it again. Never mind, start again. Come back and get the mind in a really good state, and then come back and do what you're going to do. This is the practice. Guess what? You've got your whole life to do this in, and you've got a choice. You can either do this and spend much of your days in joy, or you can complain all the time about not having the joy that you wish you had which is what po- most people do they go around complaining about not having the joy they wish they had and they're not doing really anything to gain that joy this is the time for our practice of anapanasati is to put the mind in the kind of state that you want the mind to be in And the way to do that is with nurturing thoughts, to nurture the mind. Everything's all right, everything is fine. No problems, no worries. And so uh, we can actually classify thoughts into three groups for uh, purposes of um, uh, understanding, just to get it going. Knowing that one's right view also is a skill to be developed, which means that as we develop the skill of right view, our discernment gets better and better, which means that what we used to think was wholesome, we now see the danger in it. And because of that, then we'll say, well, we can let that go too, because it was dangerous. So we can uh, put thoughts into three groups. We can have those which are completely 100%. Everybody will agree these kind of thoughts are unwholesome. Thoughts of hitting Aunt Susie. (laughs) Thoughts of arguing with Aunt Susie. Thoughts of winning against Aunt Susie. These are uh, unwholesome thoughts. Then absolutely wholesome thoughts would be thoughts like everything's all right. Everything is fine. No worries, mate. What a wonderful day this is. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Okay, these are completely wholesome thoughts. Uh, They're wholesome because they do not present obstacles
0: to you feeling good. Now, There is that big range of thoughts in the middle, the very, very
1: large, vast area that I will call junk thoughts. The kind of thoughts that we have a lot. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about slapping Aunt Susie, just like we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, what a wonderful moment this is. Oh, this breast feels so nice. We don't have those kind of thoughts much either. Normally, we have these in between. Junk thoughts. So in order to understand the junk thoughts, we recognize that uh, the Buddha taught three things. uh, Gratification, danger, and escape. The reason that we have junk thoughts is because we're getting some sort of gratification out of them. If we didn't get any gratification out of them, we wouldn't do it. Just like Homer, if he got no gratification out of eating donuts, he wouldn't eat donuts. (coughs) But if he does have gratification of the donuts, if he does not then see the danger in the donuts, then he's going to just uh, continue on with the gratification and gratification and gratification. Then when Homer goes to the doctor and the doctor tells him, hey man, you're sick you're giving yourself diabetes you've got high blood pressure you you're really really fat overweight and sick and you need to stop donuts and Homer actually hears the doctor and he recognizes that these donuts are dangerous because he can see that the donuts are dangerous now he can begin to plot his escape from donuts like not having any in the house or when there's donuts at, at the office He doesn't go into the break room because he knows if he goes into the break room, it's going to get really dangerous for him in there. And so Homer plots his escape from donuts because he can see the dangers in them. But originally, Homer couldn't see the danger in the donuts. He could only see the delicious gratification of eating the donuts. Okay, so we can take that little story about the donuts and start thinking about the mental donuts that we have—the thoughts that we have that are so sweet that actually makes us sour. In other words, uh, they talk about revenge is very sweet—the sweet taste of revenge, right? It's actually that's dangerous. If I retaliate against him, he's going to retaliate back against me big time.
0: And so these kind of thoughts, then we recognize are uh, unwholesome. We more we look, the more um,
1: skill of investigation that we bring on, the, uh, the more skillful in understanding what kind of thoughts are really wholesome and valuable and worth having. And then we start having those. But we can. But one of the things that happens in the beginning is when we see unwholesome thoughts, we have more unwholesome thoughts, more critical thoughts. Now we're criticizing the unwholesome thoughts that we had.
0: If we do that, there's no end to it. Rodrigo, are you still online? Or did you leave? Hmm. Never mind. Now, well, I have a quick question.
2: Yes, the, go ahead. So on the wholesome thoughts, you said things like, you know, in the morning, you're sitting there, you're saying, you know, today is a great day. And, you know, I um, it's a wonderful day and I don't have any, you know, there's nothing scheduled. But what if you do have stuff scheduled? I mean,
1: you're kind of lying. I'll to yourself. take care of that later. Oh, OK. OK because the stuff that you have scheduled you're not doing it right now right now you're taking time away in this private secluded time to get the mind okay the schedule stuff the question is are you going to go do those scheduled things unhappily normally the way you do it or are you going to get your mind all brightened up and in good shape so that you can go do that stuff happily
2: right actually what you're saying here is uh really practical I I've heard something similar before. I think it might have been from uh, Richard Bandler and NLPs, you know, just feel good for no reason whatsoever. And then you go do what you're going to do, because when you feel good and you do stuff, you're going to do better things than if you feel bad. <laughs> but but you're putting it in a more practical sense, I think, than uh, what I've heard before. So,
1: <laughs> I actually have done seminars with Richard Bandler. Oh, I have you? Okay. Yeah, he doesn't. I I doubt he remembers me, but I sure remember him. <laughs> uh,
2: when when did you do that? That must have been way back, huh? Way back, yes. Let's see, seventy six. Oh wow, okay, that's yeah. That was uh, like in the beginning, almost pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I think I yeah. went to go see him in Texas in. Uh, I think it was nineteen ninety eight. That was a pretty interesting. Real interesting. But yeah, you were you were there and that was like the beginning of NLP nineteen seventy six. Back there with John Grinder probably still, right? I, mean, I didn't know they did separated. Oh yeah, yeah. They had a big blowout, I guess. I think that was probably you know, I, I don't know the
1: whole history, but I think that was like in the eighties or something that
2: they had a big blowout.
1: Well any kind of blow up that they would have has to do with the fact that they're both wanting power.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They wanted to have control over the whole NLP thing, you know. Everybody wants to have power. Everybody wants to have control. Right. Yeah. And so that means that we destroy relationships. They didn't have to destroy their relationship. No, they, no. They didn't have to do that. They could have cooperated and had a all. Yeah. That is, in fact, an an important part of of uh, the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, that's why they call it the triple gem. The Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And as you were just pointing out, Bandar and Grinder did not have Sangha, and so they busted up. So what's, sangha, what's, what's the Sangha? Yeah, Sangha, let us say that there are... Uh, three ways to look at the word Sangha. The easy way to start off is the Sangha of um, monks or bhikkhus, those that are ordained and part of the, that's what is normally need, meant by the word Sangha in Western mentality. There's also another use for the word Sangha, which means any time a group of um, uh, people get together at some zen center or some place and they all sit down and meditate they call that a sangha also Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but there is the third kind of sangha which is the one that the buddha is talking about that can arise out of that group of monks and that the sangha is based all on friendship and cooperation metta nurturing and not being critical of one another. And the Sangha is designed, the uh, Sangha of monks is designed that way. But then within that Sangha, which is a large group, there will be nobles inside of that, but then do have a more noble Sangha. What does that mean? Well, that means that they actually are capable of being non-critical with each other. They're really capable. Of being, uh, 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 spreading sympathetic joy, upeka, metta, that kind of stuff. And metta
2: uh, is loving kindness,
1: right? Or is that? Well, I would take the word loving out of it. Okay. And just use the word kindness. Kindness. Or another way of saying it, friendliness. Mm-hmm. And that um, uh, there was a there is a sutta number. It's in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, and the name of it is Half Sutta. You can actually just Google Half Sutta, and it will bring this thing up. And it's a conversation between uh, the Buddha and Ananda, where Ananda has just came come from um, a conversation with Sariputta. Where Sariputta said how important friendship is, it's like half the Dhamma. And so Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, I just heard that uh, uh, friendship is half the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, oh, no, friendship is the whole Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Now, basically, the Buddha had changed the definition of the word friendship. That the way that Sariputta meant it, well, half the Dhamma means that everything that is outside, we have to be friendly with it. Everything, everything that's outside is our friend. Mm. What the Buddha added to that was the other side of it, and that is, is that everything inside is also our friend. Mm. Gotcha. And so we begin to have a friendly attitude towards everything a friendly attitude towards your own mind a friendly attitude towards what you're doing right now interesting okay so now,
0: when you
2: said Dhamma and uh, so i'm trying to get the definition of dama too like my understanding of dama was like nature right or uh live, living according to
1: nature right sort of and is that is that am i off on that well uh, if you're going to only have one definition for the term, then yes. Okay. But the word dhamma has many different definitions to it okay. in the Pali. Okay. Uh, But they can all be uh, referred to down uh, to the same kind of word that we have in English that has that fulfills the same function, and that word in English is this or thing. OK, like, for instance, the Buddha Dhamma is the Buddha's thing. <laughs> and the Dhammakaya is the whole body of things, everything. Gotcha. OK, so Dhamma Kai would be um, everything in uh, uh, translated into English and the Dhamma Kai or the Dhamma. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has expressed it that way, that the Dhamma is the god of buddhism so you can fit nature right into that sure nature is a really excellent way of uh, of talking about the dhamma so we can look at it from the sense of uh, the actual teachings of the buddha in a specialized way or everything in general okay Those are the ways of looking at it. Okay, so in this sense uh, of the uh, Triple Gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, we're actually talking about it, the Buddha Dhamma or the actual teachings of the Buddha. Which have come to the West, let us say, in a mistranslated, broken sort of way because it was not brought to the West by Arahats. You see, in Asia, uh, Buddhism was taken to Thailand by Arahats. It was taken to Nepal and to Tibet by Arahats. It was taken to China by Arahats. It came to the United States by Sidhu Suzuki and Alan Watts and uh, Madame Blasky and uh, Henry David Thoreau and Emerson. And there's a whole crowd of history of Buddhism in the United States. And even the English translators of uh, Riles Davies and I.B. Honor in that group, none of them were Buddhas. <laughs> none of them actually understood what the teachings of the, of the Buddha were. And so Western Buddha, Buddhism is devoid of Buddhas, and it has a broken Dhamma, and it is devoid of Sangha. That's your triple gem of Western Buddhism, unfortunately. There's no Sangha here. Mm. Why? Because all the Dhamma teachers are competing with each other as if they were still in the West, just like Bander and Grinder. I mean, if Bander and Grinder could not keep it together. Then what's the point of NLP? Right. If they themselves couldn't do it. Right.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a issue with a lot of teachers. Right? It's, it's, I mean, a lot of them. Well. That's where lineage comes in.
1: That uh, there is a sutta where um, Ananda, right after the time of the Buddha's death, he's having a conversation with the Brahmin, and the Brahman um, asks him the question of what's the difference between the remaining monks and the Buddha himself, who has just recently died. I assume that this was sufficient time after the council uh, because Ananda at this time in the sutta clearly was capable of answering that question correctly. And so what he said was that there is no distinction between the students of the Buddha, the Arhats, and the Buddha himself an Arhat other than that the buddha was the one who rediscovered the path the buddha himself even said that it was an old ancient path that he merely discovered it he didn't invent the four noble truths and the Eightfold noble path that that has already been available to humans all along he just right. rediscovered it but that's the only distinction the only distinction of the buddha himself is is that He was the one who could figure it out and put it in practice, but he was well suited for that because of the six years that he spent in uh, mental uh, manipulations, um, controlling things, controlling his breath, uh, uh, controlling his diet, uh, doing all kinds of austerities and whatnot like that and finding out that all of those power trips that he was on was not functioning to give him what he was really looking for but it it did develop the skills that he needed to actually put it together and do it right yeah he and did he so, went
2: like in he went an ascetic way before right he was you know uh
1: you know poverty and not eating and stuff like that right yeah. And and before that, he was with uh, Alakalama and Naga Nataputta's uh, Nata uh, uh, tutelage learning the jhanas. Mm-hmm. And he found that the jhanas themselves were not uh, the path. That was not what he was looking for. But he had the skills of jhana now going that he was able to take to find out what needed to be done. But now you have all of this um, idea of Western mentality of uh, attainments. Attainments Mm -hmm. like uh, attaining Sotapan, attaining Arahat, attaining Jhana. And so lust for Jhana, especially with the Jhanas, are known for two things. One is past life um, remembrance. and, And number two is development of spiritual powers. And so a lot of people want to practice jhana, practice meditation uh, to prove to themselves that they will be reborn or prove to themselves that they can get spiritual powers, both of which are quite dangerous. And there's side trips. I mean, why should somebody spend years and years and years trying to have a past life experience or spend years and years and years trying to develop magical powers that they're probably not going to get? When they could spend all of those years being happy instead. Right.
2: Well, Buddha, Buddha Asa, right? B, is it Bhikkhu Buddhasa? Am I pronouncing that right? He, Yeah, Bikku Buddha Buddhasa. Uh huh. Buddha Dasa. There we go. Buddha Dasa. So he, uh, from the little bit I've read of him, I read the No Religion essay, I guess, he, uh, or talk that he did, which was really good. And, um, but uh, my understanding is he didn't really think there were past lives, right? I mean, uh, so or 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 or
1: does he? At Watson and Milk, the general um, discussion around is is that if anybody actually comes and asks about past lives, mm-hmm. the answer is is that oh, down the road there's a what where they actually like to talk about that kind of stuff. Here, we've got better things to talk about. Mm. But over there, if you want to talk about past lives, you go over there someplace else, down the road, over the hill, across the valley, or go to India. Just go away. <laughs> Don't bother us. Right. Okay. okay. That's generally the attitude at Whatso and mok is to invite people to get out. <laughs> but we do it in a humorous, loving way. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, we don't (laughs) talk about that kind of stuff here. But a a more direct way of saying it is, is that those kinds of things are actually not, uh, they're just irrelevant. Hmm. They're irrelevant for someone who knows they're irrelevant and they are a rabbit hole or a trap for people who lust after such things. Gotcha.
2: Well, I'm kind of lucky because I don't even know what those things are. I don't even know what a jhana is, honestly.
1: So I, I mean, I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, the, what we're actually practicing with Anapanasati is the practicing the skills that one needs to gather together to get into the first jhana. and And the easy working definition of the word jhana, first jhana, would be that you're completely satisfied. Okay. You're in a state of satisfaction. Okay.
0: Also a bit of state of wow. Or gratitude.
1: Or my isn't this actually marvelous. It also has to do with the can-do attitude. You could express it as yeeha. <laughs> okay. A wow, how nice it is. And it's the wow factor that is also added to it. The wow, how nice it is, how nice it is, is the pleasure, the sukkah. that has uh, how nice it is, has comfort and security and satisfaction built into it. When we add the wow, how nice it is, now we're adding um, success. Okay. Does that Except come that. on its own, or, or do you develop that too, just we like... develop nurse- that intentionally. These are actual skills to be developed. Okay. So we're working on doing this. It's not just happening. It's not something... Right. Like- Is it? right. Well, we have to practice it. Yeah. Okay. And every time that you're practicing it, you're doing it. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And when you're not practicing it, you're not doing it. Right. And when you're practicing it often enough, then it you can get you can do it long enough that it's about the length of a song, and now we can talk about it in the sense that we can perform it because we can do it for a while. Right. And then right. When we get really, really good at it as a master, now we're just playful. Everything is just to play. Everything is leela. We just dance through life. Right. But the way that our society is built is is that it's a march up two three four do what you were told to do get that job lift that bale tote that barge you know those kind of uh, stuff that's what our society is built on up two three four up uh, two three four and most, really, of, most of my to... life's
2: been built on that
1: <laughs> uh huh and <laughs> so here we're going to start living a life of a waltz. da 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 Da-da-da-da, da-da-da, da okay, so this is the kind of life that we want to build for ourselves, but we have to come out of the hub 2 three, four mindset, the critical thinking, the making progress, that when people are marching, they're normally marching to get from here to there. Mm-hmm. When we're waltzing, we don't care about getting to the other side of the room, we're just having a ball. Gotcha. not interested in where we're going we're enjoying what, what we're the movement itself
2: now on that note on enjoying things i i i have been working on it like enjoying the in breath like this is a good in breath and this is a good out breath um, <laughs> and um i i'm just my experience of that the the enjoyment is short-lived for me. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, again, that's just something I just keep practicing and eventually it'll Short, extend.
1: Short-lived is a critical thought. Gotcha.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, my experience is it short-lived. I mean,
1: I mean. No, 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 no. Call, your experience and calling it short-lived is a critical thought. I gotcha. A nurturing thought would be, never mind, start again. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. Never mind, it wandered away. Never mind. A critical thought came up. Let's just start again.
0: Have a ball. Ah, okay, okay.
1: That in a way, sense. you could say. Um, though, I don't really like to use it this way, but one can think of it in the sense of instant forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I. This just popped into my head, but
2: it kind of reminds me of a guy. I've. I've uh, A good friend of ours has a newborn baby that's just starting to walk. And, you know, I feel like it's the same kind of thing. You know, they, they do a little sort of. You know, they're barely getting on their feet and they're about to fall on their face, but you're encouraging them. You know, it's great. You're up. You know, it doesn't matter. You just fell on your butt four times. It's sick. You oh, you're up again. Yay.
1: Well, that <laughs> you know, that seems, That's a really <clears throat> excellent point. I talk about it often in the sense that when a mom has a new tender born infant and she gets that infant in the hospital, she bonds with that child. She nurtures that child. That uh, there are so many bonding chemicals going on between the two of them that uh, the workers in the maternity room like to go in. that's the That's the favorite time. and any go to any maternity nurse that works in a maternity ward and ask her what's your favorite time?" And the answer if she if she is thinking, or you can remind her, is when a mum gets her baby the first instant. Right. And they'll yeah. say, yeah, that's it. Right. Tears come down the eyes when we think about, you know, and, and people cry with joy often at that tender moment. That tender moment continues to last into the example that you're giving. That when, the, when that infant is learning to walk, the parents will encourage the child. Never mind you pile down. Get up and go again. Yeah, you're getting it. You're getting it right. And we encourage them. We give them nurturing thoughts. By the time the child is six years old, we stop encouraging them and say, sit down and do your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, do your homework, put your cell phone down, go to school, clean your room. And you see that 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 change has been made from the nurturing into the critical. The child then picks that up and starts living a critical life. And he leaves that nurturing in diapers. Mm -hmm. It's time to let your nurturing grow up also. To have that nurturing parent as well as the critical parent. Makes sense. That's the wholesome thoughts that the Buddha is talking about. Thoughts of, instead of, I want this. We can have thoughts of, right now I don't need it. Thoughts about, I've got work to do. The thought is, right now I don't have anything to do. Right now I can just relax. If I'm if I'm feeling uptight about the work that I've got to do, and then I go do the work, I'll do it while I'm uptight. If I can forget about the work and get myself into a really really nice state, and I will actually now give you the, that nice state that we're defining is actually the first jhana. It's just a really really nice state. Okay, And when you're in that really nice state, then you can go and you can do that job happily mm. if you can maintain that nice state. And that nice state has five factors. Number one, it's free from critical thinking. It's It does not have those hindrances. Number two, it has the sukha, which is the feeling of safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. That sukka. Now, safety, security, uh, comfort, and satisfaction is exactly the opposite of being dissatisfied, uncomfortable, and insecure, which is what dukkha is. Sukha is exactly the opposite. So dukkha would then be dissatisfaction. Sukha would be complete satisfaction. And real satisfaction also has comfort, safety, and security. Okay. Okay. And so these are skills to be developed. As you breathe in, feel secure. As you breathe out, feel comfortable. As you breathe in, feel satisfied. As you feel, breathe out, relax. Okay. And by doing that over and over and over and over again and getting successful at it and feeling safe and secure and comfortable, that feeling of success begins to grow. The Pali word is shraddha or sada, or with the Sanskrit. Uh, Saddha, then, uh, is often translated out of the Pali into English as
0: faith. Well, we know that the guys who did those translations were Catholics to begin with. This
1: kind of faith, in fact, uh, some people say, well, you can't, you can't even get started with meditation and, unless you get some faith, and then the faith grows into confidence. The answer to that is no. It's never faith, and it's always confidence. But you can listen to me and have that spark from my confidence, and you can gain that confidence. If I know that I can do it, you know that you can do it, too, and you can pick that confidence up. That's where the spark of confidence or the spark of, uh, of the Dhamma comes from. Is okay. that the Buddha's walking around after he's got it, and other people take a look at him and see what a happy jolly fellow he is, and they want some of that too. And he says, Here it is by the bucket load. Yeah. And that's how he gets started. That in fact, this confidence grows. This is part of the lineage. That if you really have that kind of um, confidence in your teacher then that confidence in that teacher will rub off into the confidence that you can do it too.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: That's what we mean then in the Pali is the word Sama Sankapa, which means that we're changing our attitude from being the loser, trying meditation, working hard at it, into the winner of, hey, this is a piece of cake. I could do it too. Mm -hmm. And so begin to look at your pleasure as a piece of cake. You can do that. It's easy peasy. It's really easy to feel good. I mean, look how easy it is for you to feel bad. <laughs> you just talk yourself into feeling bad. Now all we have to do is talk ourselves into feeling good, nurturing thoughts, wholesome thoughts. And we, and we need to practice this over and over again And so this is why we want to get in seclusion and have a formal practice. But the word formal doesn't have to go all the way to what has been like in the West, to where you've got to go to a certain place with a certain pillow, face in a certain direction, having (laughs) your pillows lined up everybody else's and have a certain kind of altar or dais with a certain kind of statue or monk or something up on that dais. Okay? So this is where we think of as meditation. And with that, I can say, okay, well, we're not even doing meditation. We're going to do Anapanasati. And what is sat- uh, Anapanasati means to wake up and remember to breathe well. Right. Okay. To breathe both with the breathing and breathe with the mind. To breathe out all of those unwholesome thoughts and to breathe in some wholesome thoughts. Relaxing the body. So Anapanasati is to remember, to remember, to remember, to practice remembering. This is why I would recommend several times a day rather than one formal sitting practice. If people are sitting for an hour and that's all they're doing, then that means that they have 23 hours of hindrances. They've been practicing hindrances their whole life. 23 hours of hindrances a day and one hour of meditation. Which one's going to win that one?
2: (laughs) That's a (laughs) no-brainer.
1: Okay, but if we're practicing often, four, five, six times a day for five or ten minutes, then we're beginning to develop a new habit. Mm -hmm. And so one of the times that is really good is when you first wake up in the morning. Another time that's really good is when you're going to bed at night instead of thinking about all the stuff that you've got to do tomorrow, all the things that are out there someplace else. Just uh, keep your mind focused on what's happening in that bed. Just keep your mind right here, right now. That's your world, the world of the bed, the world of this cover. Oh, and it feels so nice to just lay here, no place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. Everything is okay. Everything is all right. And so we go to sleep with those kind of pleasant thoughts and we're most likely to not have a bunch of dreaming because dreaming is nothing more than the uh, critical thinking that goes on during the night that we were doing all day. The Buddha talks about it fire by night, fire by day and smoldering by night.
2: Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's interesting.
1: So he's not too much interested in dreams and dream interpretation. <laughs> I mean, it's just a bunch of uh, mental motion. Right. I and can't so remember we, my
2: dreams anyway, so.
1: <laughs> well, they're not important. Right. And then, in fact, it's better to not have dreams. If you're not dreaming, that probably means that you're getting better rest anyway. Mm. Another time that you can practice would be like at lunch, or at morning breaks, or while you're in transport. If you ride the bus,
0: then that's the time to just sit and breathe and be happy. To practice having wholesome thoughts. It seems. Go ahead. No,
2: I I was going to say it's your the way you. uh describe it it's definitely uh it's it's simple i don't know how easy it is but i mean i'm going to try to make i'm going to i'm going to work not try i'm going to i'm going to work at making it easier
1: but uh how about i'm going to do it (laughs) i'm going to do it that's wholesome (laughs) okay i'm going to try is unwholesome it's got um loser built into it the word try is is the um um uh let us say the motto of the loser right Oh, well, that makes sense That makes sense
2: i would say the same thing and uh you know if i was training somebody in sales or something like that you know you just you gotta just practice so i mean you're it's the
1: same same thing basically just. <laughs> it is we have been practicing feeling bad we have been practicing being critical now it's the time to practice feeling good, to practice right. having wholesome thoughts, literally to talk yourself into feeling good. An example of feeling good in the sense of feeling safe and secure, you can have thoughts like, and it basically it's thoughts of emptiness or thoughts of sunyata, thoughts of things that are not here. There are no dangerous things here. And because there's no dangerous things here, it's okay to feel safe. There are no alligators here. There's no pythons. There's no copers here. There's no uh, mother in laws <laughs> There's no grizzly bears. There's no SWAT team. There's no mafia. There's nobody here, nothing. And so I can feel completely safe. And so allow yourself to talk like that and check it out. How do you feel? Do you actually feel safe and secure? Because that's actually, for many people, an unusual feeling Yeah, to be completely safe and secure. So talk yourself into feeling really safe and secure. Because you know the reality is is that right this very minute, you actually are safe and secure. So why is it that we have these lingering fears? Hmm. The answer is we talk ourselves into it. We give ourselves fearful thoughts. And then we feel afraid if we stop giving ourselves fearful thoughts and start having thoughts of there's nothing here to fear, then we'll begin to feel fearless. Makes sense. Now, during the, the
2: quote-unquote formal practice, am I doing the
1: breathing at the same time that I'm doing these thoughts? I, I'm, Not actually. Well, it depends upon what you mean by simultaneously or at the same time. Well, if I'm laying in bed, so I just, I'm going to bed at
2: night and you, you were talking about doing the thoughts. So am I doing the breathing practice along with that or am I just having those good thoughts and then dozing a, off? Or? A thought
1: moment lasts about a tenth of a second mm. or maybe if we're really slow down to about a fifth of a second.
2: Okay.
1: Really slow, a fifth of a second. If we're really slow, then within one second. Four, five to ten things are going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Things happen pretty fast. So in that regard, I would say that no, things don't happen at the same time. Okay. They happen in time, one by one as they occur, but sometimes they occur in rapid succession. And when they're occurring in rapid succession and the mind is very slow, we kind of get the idea that all that stuff happened in the same time to where, in fact, no, it didn't. Okay. That we're just not watching the sequence of events. We're not seeing things the way that they really are. But if we pay close attention and start watching, we can see that, in fact, I can, in one mind moment, make sure that this is a long breath, And then in the next mind moment, I can tell myself how nice this long breath is. And in the next moment, I can actually feel this uh, thing. Another example of that is, is that when people talk about, well, I can watch the breath, but I have all of these background thoughts. No, the thoughts are not in the background. The thoughts are just taking some of the mind moments. Well that makes okay.
2: sense because I, I've always thought that myself. Like people are saying you're having this thought and another thought at the same time. I've never personally been able to do that. <laughs> Have multiple thoughts simultaneously, but um I I've heard people describe it that way. But I don't well, I don't know their,
1: from... <laughs> their definition of simultaneous is a big one. Okay. My, when my definition of simultaneous is down at the nanosecond level.
3: Right.
1: But right. the reality is, is that things happen so fast that there is very little simultaneity. Right. But there is instantaneous changes in time that we're just not aware of.
0: Okay, that everything, in fact, is a process. Everything process.
2: On the breathing part, I think I remember reading something about absorption in the breathing, or is that something that?
1: Yes, let's not let's not use words like absorption or immersion. These are words that are used by people who do not know what they're talking about. Okay. You will see people actually translate some of the polywords into absorption and immersion. Okay. Here's what, uh, when people are absolutely absorbed, they're generally absorbed or lost in space, lost in thought. They're Mm -hmm. absorbed with their thoughts. They're not really paying attention to what's really going on around them. Okay. They're not really paying attention to how they feel. They're not paying attention to their breathing. They're not paying attention to the air that moves around the body. They're not paying attention to anything. Why? Because they're absorbed in their idea. They're absorbed into their concept. That's absorption. That's the very uh, opposite. Absorption or immersion is exactly what we're trying to come out of, not go into. And yet a lot of people think that uh, jhana is absorption or going into something rather than coming out. Basically, the coming out is coming out of agitation, to come out of restlessness. The first layer is, the unwholesome thoughts of the mind that give all of these uh, feelings of worry, anxiety, et cetera, like that. So once we get the mind down to the point that we have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, we begin to feel that way. Okay, so that's now a whole different level of peace and quiet. But one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought is also a bit noisy why don't we put some gaps in it and when we put the gaps in the thoughts that's when we begin to have many many more mind moments that are not in discursive thinking but mind moments that are actually paying attention to how we feel okay and we begin and because we've already developed the point of feeling really really good that really feeling good is now a new level of agitation which wait, the, wait, wait the, the feeling the feeling good is a agitation Is a level of agitation. It's a new level of agitation. But boy, is it a whole lot better than the two levels of agitation that we've come down from <laughs> right. the agitation of anything down to the agitation of only wholesome thoughts? Now we're down to the, ag- uh, the level of only marvelous feelings. And we, and, but that agitation of marvelous feelings can subside down to the level of just equanimity or just, ah, just complete relaxation. So the jhanas in fact are moving from turmoil to relaxation, to more relaxation, to more relaxation. Ah. okay. Not absorption at all. Absorption actually is a way of agitation. okay, Rather than peacefulness. So we're looking for peace and quiet and everything is okay, And we can finally completely relax. So you can say then that fourth jhana is the point that you're so completely relaxed that all you have is sensory awareness and you're not even bothered to process your data anymore. Perception. We don't even bother to perceive or to have feelings. We're just there, absorbing. It's very much like that. You finally become just the camera. That's hard for me to process right now, but uh, I think. Don't I bother. Can... Don't bother. Bother <laughs> okay. right now. Your job is to the the first job, which is let's get these thoughts wholesome. Don't okay. worry about what happens in the fourth, John. The question is, can you develop first, John? Can okay. you get yourself into wholesome thoughts? One wholesome thought after another.
2: I think I can do this.
1: I think you can. <laughs> I think you can do it. I think that you can enjoy it and and uh, and have a ball at doing it. Yeah. As, and get, gain great benefit out of it. And when we gain great benefit out of it, That means that we get wholeheartedly into it, rather than having dialogues, which most meditation students have, which is basically the guy's watching YouTube. And then he says to himself, you ought to be meditating. And then the next thought is, I don't want to meditate. And then the (laughs) next thought is, you got to meditate, guy. The other, and the next thought is, yeah, but I don't really want to. And now he's not watching the video and he is not meditating. He's just having a pity party. Sure. I've done that. (laughs) Definitely done that. And if the thought comes, you ought to be meditating, the answer to that is,
0: that's the answer. (laughs) Okay. That's the answer,
1: to do it right now. You don't have to say, well, I can't I can't meditate now because I'm not on break yet. No, you can take a deep breath and enjoy this moment, too, yeah. if you can remember. That's, That's the whole point is developing that sati so that we can remember. It doesn't matter what skills you have. If you don't remember to apply the skills, it's the same as you don't have the skills. That it's it's, it's okay. very
2: freeing to know that you don't have to wait, <laughs> you know, that, that I don't have to. We could just do I could just do this right now.
1: You can do it right it. now. You can just feel really good right now. Just do yeah. it.
0: <laughs> Everything's OK right now. Yeah. yeah. Don't I have do. to wait. Yeah. Yeah. Just that teaching
2: alone has been uh, really something. I, I, and I don't catch myself you know, that much, but when I do, it's it's nice to know, you know, because even on the, the walk I do in the morning and stuff like that, I catch myself and so
1: it's, it's nice. Keep practicing. Yeah. Keep practicing so that that santi becomes. Um, let's say a skill that's readily available. I would use the word readily available rather than there all the time. An example of that would be that the uh, mom sweeps the, the floor with her broom. Mm-hmm. And anytime she wants to sweep the floor, she can sweep the floor with her broom because the broom is standing in the corner. But she doesn't have to carry the broom around all the time. Ah, yeah. She nice. just picks it up when she needs it. That's the skill of sati. So is that you like, know, a, sati- is it a habit? Is it kind of like a habit that you've, you know, or you develop the habit of waking up? Yes, you, will, yeah. you develop the habit of uh, waking up and seeing what's going on around you. Basically, the sati is, is to pay attention to what is happening right here, right now. One of the things that's always happening right here, right now, is that you're breathing. Your body oh. is in a particular posture so noticing the posture noticing the breathing brings us right into the moment
2: right and back into That's, your body kind of right i mean
1: and uh, back into the body back into your world right. out of the world of concepts right the world that you can see the world you can hear the world you can touch the world that you can feel right now the your world is contained within inside that room hmm. Anything that's on the outside of that room is not in your world. Which right. means that you're completely safe because that room right now is completely safe. It's completely comfortable. There may be discomfort and unsafety outside of your world. And if you think about that stuff, then that's conceptualizations and you're bringing that outside world that's dangerous. Into your own mind. You brought it into your world. Right. But if you stay in the world of senses, then you're not bringing it in uh, into the outside world, bringing it in as a concept. Right. So coming out of concepts and, and critical thinking concepts then would be anything that's not here right now. An example of that
0: is, is that Putin, Trump, uh, Merkel, Johnson,
1: none of those people exist in your world. Mm-hmm. They only exist in a conceptualized world. You, They only exist when you think of them. And when you don't think of them, they don't exist.
0: Now, if you were standing in front of uh, Andrea Merkel, then she would be in your world. Right. But you've never
1: done that. You've never stood right in front of us. She's never been in your world. True. She's just a concept. Right. Mm-hmm. Look, almost everything that we would think of that's in our world actually is not in our world. It's just a concept that our real world is actually quite small. It's the world of the senses. That my world ends right out there at the road because I can't see any further than that. That's the furthest distance that I can see. So, when people ask me, "How is Thailand?" yeah, oh no that is a
0: big place <laughs> right.
1: Thailand's bigger than the state of Texas, and it's got more people than Texas. Mm-hmm. getting close to eighty million people., I want to know about how all those people are. <laughs> So this is a way that we begin to see things. Is is that we re- we understand that the world is the world of our senses, plus a conceptualized world in our minds. Those are the two worlds that we have. The actual real world, for instance, the real world of um, the Andromeda galaxy, is only a real world to the guy sitting at the telescope or. Looking at the photos that the telescope has taken of the Andromeda Galaxy. For you and me, we got nothing. Right. 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 That helps a lot when we recognize that, oh, I don't have to worry about the entire world. All I have to do is take care of my own world, the reality of the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I would like to mention one last thing on the, on that, and that is, is that um, on, on the YouTubes, uh, some of the people have been putting on comments that have to do with something like, how can you be happy when there are children suffering in Yemen? Another poster post, how can you be happy when there is world hunger? Mm-hmm. Another one was posting, how can you be happy when there is chauvinism at a particular place? Okay. Okay. The particular place that she's talking about is within what she is thinking in her own mind as the sangha. The actuality is, is that she has not seen any chauvinism that's not in her world. Right. She's concocted that. She has not been a monk or a nun, and so she does not know the relationship between monks and nuns. All she's heard is feminists squawk about it. And those feminists are not even in her world. Her world of uh, monks are all chauvinist is up in her mind.
0: Right
1: Right. World hunger is in the other lady's mind. Children being tortured in Yemen is in the third lady's mind. If you do not have chauvinism, if you do not have um, Yemen and world hunger in your mind, you can throw that kind of stuff out and be happy. Because the woman who has world hunger in her mind, she has not solved world hunger, nor does she even intend to. She just wants me to not feel good because there is world hunger. Yeah, feeling
2: feeling bad about those things doesn't actually do anything unless somebody actually takes some effort to, unless you're going out to feed people or whatever, it doesn't really make a difference.
1: Well, in the reality of the situation, in my world, no one is hungry. The mosquitoes bite the skin, the dogs have dog food, the people have people food, everybody's happy. There is no one hungry here. If someone is hungry, we'll feed them. Mm-hmm. Um, you have no doubt uh, heard about metta in the sense of may all beings be happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've, is, I've
2: only heard about it as a loving kindness thing, but yeah. Lo-
1: loving kindness. And part of the practice that people have will be, will be may all beings be happy. Okay. They talk about it in the sense of the six points of the compass, north, south, east, west, up and down. Altitude and direction of the six points of the compass. Western mentality can, tends to think of that six points of the compass of, of west, for instance, is west just keeps going west and the world keeps getting bigger and bigger. And south and the world keeps getting bigger and bigger. But in the time of the Buddha, there was a real definition for that, and that is, is that the six points of the compass are real. On one side are my friends, on the other side are my family. The people in front of me are the people that I deal with in business. The people behind me are trying to stab me in the back. The people below me are the ones who uh, wait for me. uh, Let us say in uh, the grocery store or service people, uh, guys who pump the gas, that kind of stuff. And then the ones on top are the authorities like the politicians and the cops and the priest and that kind. Okay. But that only means the people that I deal with. It's not talking about uh, officials like Putin that I'd never deal with. Those are not part of my world. I guess. So when we go around saying may all beings be happy, are we talking about a generalized thing, a conceptual everyone? or Are we talking about only the people who will in my world? Because I can only give metta to people that I know. I cannot give any metta to people that I've never seen before. I'm merely giving metta to my own mental concept in that case. Right. Mm. So the involvement then of Buddhism was the bodhisattva ideal. Have you heard of that? No. It's the same thing. The bodhisattva ideal in Mahayana is is that uh, I cannot become enlightened until all beings become enlightened. Oh, okay. I I, I
2: have heard of that, yes.
1: All right. Isn't it actually the same thing as the metta? It's exactly the same thing as metta, except that instead of trying to give people a little bit of joy and kindness, now you're trying to give them complete enlightenment. (laughs) All of them, even the people who, everybody just (laughs) conceptualized And you can see that if all of those people that I wish to become enlightened have no examples of what to be, the likelihood of them being able to do that is zip. That in fact, I would be able to help people to become enlightened if I were already enlightened myself, helping a few individuals come in. But as it is, me not being enlightened, and I've got to be that woman who is worried now about the starving children in Yemen or the world poverty or world hunger or whatever like that. So you can see that, in fact, people who are um, at that one level of you cannot be happy until world hunger is solved. is exactly the same issue, a little bit bigger of we cannot have any enlightened beings until everybody is enlightened. Mm. And we can't force that on them. So the third time, by the way, this transition in the teachings of the Buddha or Buddhism itself happened at about uh, the time of the birth of Christ. About 500 years it took for the Mahayana to take a hold in India. Hmm. But then about 500 years later, with suffering through that may all beings be happy, came the Tantra time. The Tantra period then is the period of becoming one with reality. To become one with nature and that becoming one make me one with everything that idea means that now we take control which means now we have the power to make everybody become enlightened or to have the power to make everybody be happy right
0: so is that, is that a bad thing? But that has bear? never
1: happened. It, well, that's the whole point. When in history has anyone ever had enough power to make anybody do anything? It's true. Never been done. That kind of power tripping is just a, a further extension of the power tripping of the um, bodhisattva. Wishing everyone to be enlightened before he gets to it, but that's also the power tripping of the meta practice. May all beings be happy. When in fact all beings is not our business. All of those beings are merely mental concepts within the mind of each one of those people who were either wanting people to be happy or wanting people to become enlightened or making them to become enlightened. It's all just a mental trip.
3: The original
1: teaching of the Buddha is come out of those mental trips. Stop trying to gain power. Stop trying to make people do anything and just be happy. And your happiness will rub off on them. So
2: was the uh, What did the Buddha have a meta practice or did that
1: come later? He actually taught against it. No, the meta practice did exist in the time of the Buddha, according to the suttas. The reason that we have it in the suttas is because a group of monks were going out on Pindabad and run across a group of other group of monks who were practicing metta. And so they had a conversation, and basically the guys who were practicing metta saying that we're doing the same things as you guys are doing. And so without arguing with them, the bhikkhus came back to the Buddha and, and referred to that. And the Buddha was saying, oh, no, because the metta practice is limiting that. It doesn't take one all the way. I see. That it's got limits to it and that those limits uh, uh, are really not liberating. And not only that, but trying to make everybody happy and everybody doesn't get happy means that I want people to be happy and are not going to be happy. I'm not getting what I want is a form of dukkha built into the metapractice.
2: Right. When you say things like that, it reminds me so much of Epictetus because he's like, you know, if you have a desire and you can't get your desire, you're miserable. If you want to avoid something that you can't avoid, you're miserable. So so the key to life is to, Figure out the proper thing to desire or or, or or to avoid or to eliminate them. It's kind of the same thing.
1: I wonder where Epicurus got his stuff. <laughs> yeah, I
2: yeah, I've, I've, I've thought the same thing. Obviously, he came around, you know, uh, Epictetus. But, I mean, you know, Stoicism was around way before that. But it's still, I mean, that's 500 years later. So, I mean, he, you know, chances are they came across some of these things, I imagine.
1: Well, it goes like this then. The Buddha himself said he merely discovered an old path. Mm -hmm. Epicurus could do that too. Jesus could do that too. Uh, Eckhart Tolle could do that too. Ram could do that too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so that's, in fact, uh, the story of Eckhart Tolle is, uh, is a really good one. But the books that he wound up writing, he had to go read Buddhism to figure out how to tell what he had experienced. Sure. sure,
0: Yep. Okay.
1: But the whole point is that you can can feel good now. You don't have to wait. Right. Right. Yep. You do not have to wait for others to become enlightened. You can just do it. Right (laughs) this very minute. And you can remember You can keep doing it, and if you forget, then later you'll remember, never mind, start again.
0: Right. It's a
2: very forgiving system.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, in in a way. um, That nurturing is actually a form of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That never mind what I can
0: criticize. I'm not going to bother to criticize it. I'm going to accept it the way that it is now.
2: Well, you're kind of taking it one step further. Not only am I going to accept it, but I'm going to enjoy it. Right? I mean, (laughs) might as well. Yeah. (laughs) Don't need to just accept. I can take it up to another level, right?
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Now, the other stuff that I've heard you say, and you mentioned it a few times today, is you know this. sense of power comes from that where like I can do this and I can, you know, uh, that seems like a, an important piece that I'm just starting to, I don't know. It's starting to gel. I think maybe
1: Mm -hmm. the Buddha thought it was important enough to actually put it as an item on the eightfold noble path. Oh, really? I I didn't realize that. Yes. Let's go over that again. Right. View comes Mm -hmm. first. If you don't have any right view, then you're unlikely to develop the skills that you're going to need. But it too is a skill of investigation. Then we have sati. The sati is the waking up, which means to wake up and investigation, to wake up and take a look, or to wake up and to get into the senses. Or in that uh, uh, frame, To wake up and smell the coffee. To wake up to smell the coffee, you got to take a deep in breath. You got to smell. You got to be in your senses, right? Okay. So wake up to smell the coffee is exactly what we're talking about. To wake up and get and be here now. To wake up and recognize there's got a cup of coffee under your nose. Take a deep breath and enjoy the flavors. (sighs) And. Uh, when we wake up and do the smell, if we actually smell that w- this, this is not coffee that is putrid, that this is an unwholesome thought that we're having, now we can throw that out and put something more wholesome in. That's one's right effort. So we do the investigation to find out, is this coffee or what? And if it's not, then we can throw that out and put some coffee in Mm -hmm. that's one's right effort is to change what we're doing in this present moment in this particular tenth of a second we can change what we're doing from unwholesome to wholesome when we do that over and over and over and over and over again and become successful at it over and over and over and over again so that we can get ourselves into a state of comfort over and over and over again, get ourselves into a state of feeling safe and secure over and over and over again, and also getting ourselves into the state of satisfaction over and over and over again. That over and over again builds that confidence, that shraddha. So that the fourth one, samasankapa, or one's right attitude comes into play, and that right attitude is I can do this. Gotcha. When that attitude gets really strong, then the attitude becomes I can do this no matter what. No matter what, I can remember to look at what I'm doing, to throw that unwholesome thought out and to and to uh, uh, gain a really positive, good attitude. No matter what. So here's what we mean by that. No matter what means no matter what obstructions, no matter how sick I get, I can still feel good.
0: Okay, Even if I get stopped by the cops.
1: You know, you're tuning down the road, and all of a sudden you hear the uh, uh, the siren, or whatever sound it makes, and they have the reds and the white lights and the flashing, and we pulling over the car. How do you feel when that happens?
2: Not good, usually.
1: <laughs> all right. But you do know you have control over it. That uh-huh. if you could wake up at that moment before, while you're even pulling the car over to the side or even as you're beginning to pull the car over to the side, you can take a deep breath and say, I can handle this. I can handle this. This is nothing. This is a piece of cake. And with that attitude, then the cop comes and he tells you to roll down your window. You say, hi, officer. I'm really good to, glad to see you out on duty tonight. <laughs> and you treat him the way that he would like to be treated. If you are afraid of the cop, your your fear will be showing, and he will pick that up, and he will respond to your fear with his fear. He puts his hand on his gun, and he starts getting really bossy. Mm -hmm. People get even more afraid, and they start fidgeting around, and he pulls his gun out, and he shoots them, and he says they were going for a gun.
0: Yep.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of privileged in that way. I don't really worry. About, I have fear in that way. But I do get kind of resentful that I'm going to be paying $300 in fines. That's that's usually what pops into my mind.
1: All right. So the, <laughs> resent, the resentment then. Resentment will get you a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Being very congratulatory and joyful for the cop doing a good job out there. And he might give you just a warning or nothing. That's true. Yeah. But if you really resent that ticket, even before he writes it, for sure you'll get one. Mm -hmm. So as your attitude begins to change the way other people around you behave. Because we respond to each other's fear, angers, anxieties, and we also respond to each other's joy. Mm -hmm. And so the way to deal with the world is joyfully. The only way to deal with the world joyfully is the world around you is by joining, by having the interior world full of joy, full of friendship. And then you can treat the world, even the cop, like a friend. And I guess
2: the real key, based on what you're saying, is to practice that in like a safe spot. And that's kind of what the a meditation practice is, is you're doing it in a place where... The real stressors of life aren't there at that time. So you're not
1: right to real to take the real pressure off Mm -hmm. so that you can feel relaxed. And when you feel really relaxed then you can go back in and take a little pressure without feeling the pressure. Right, right,
2: right. So you have a little buffer. But when you get out into the real world, sort of Mm -hmm. from the you're taking
1: that little buffer from the practice into the real world. And when you keep practicing, that buffer grows to the point that you—it's so big that nothing's going to bother you anymore. Well, hey, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> That's why it's worth practicing. It's yeah. worth practicing getting yourself into a good mood over and over and over and over and over again, mm-hmm. so that you can be in a good mood when
0: tragedy occurs. Sure. Sure. Okay, well, let's finish
1: now. I think that we've gotten something that you can get started with. We know about why to practice often during the day, several times during the day. And you also know that there's not much to the practice. You just keep putting wholesome thoughts in the mind, one wholesome thought after another, after another. Mm-hmm. If you can get to that point, we'll take it from there.
2: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be practicing all this week, no doubt.
1: Excellent. <laughs>
2: Okay, really... Chris,
1: well, we'll. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll see you later then. Okay.
0: Bye, Don Marana. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.